Hey, Jen. Hey, Tina. You ready? I'm ready. Okay, here we go. You're listening to Speaking of Racism. Dr. Candace Hargens is joining me on the podcast today. Dr. Hargens, uh, Candace, thank you so much for being here with me to have this conversation. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. Um, I would love to start with how I met you. Okay. Um, because I feel like it would be a good, just a good jump off into what you do at the Center for Healing Racial Trauma. So. Beginning of May, I was sitting in a condo in Pigeon Forge, Tennessee. I was listening to a uh, the Liberate meditation app, which is um, a meditation app by BIPOC folk for BIPOC folk. I happened to be listening to your meditation and talk. While I was listening, somebody entered the code to come into the condo where I was. And of course, my first thought was that it was my wife coming back from a hike. And after a few seconds of that code being entered into the door, uh, realizing that it actually was not her, um, the door opened, there was a pause, the door closed. When I got up to go and look, I realized that I, I had no idea who had just opened up my door and come in, but then left immediately. The reason that this was such a, well, there's, you know, that that was a traumatic thing. But what happened as a result of that for me is I began to have flashbacks. The flashbacks took me back to September 2019 when I sat inside of the courtroom for uh, about three days for Amber Geiger's murder trial. And what I will share with our audience, if you're not, if they're not familiar with who Amber Geiger is, Amber Geiger was the Dallas police officer who shot and killed Botham John, a young African-American man in Dallas. And since I sat inside the courtroom, listened to, watched hours of testimony and body cam footage from the officers, um, as well as listening to all of the witnesses that were called, and in particular, um, what came back to me in ways that I had reactions, bodily reactions, emotional reactions, um, what came back to me was just remembering um, the events that were laid out um, as far as, you know, Amber entering the apartment that she mistook for her own, um, feeling that she was in danger because she sees a black man in the living room. She shot him. She killed him. And there was a lot of time during the trial spent on how she could have misunderstood, you know, mistaken that apartment for hers. So all of that to say, I began having these flashbacks. I began reacting in a way that I just, I just, I didn't understand why I was reacting this way and, and, and the flashbacks coming. So I looked for you. I began to kind of Google you, where could I find you? I found you on Facebook. I sent you a message. You responded immediately. And we had our first session later that night. Mm -hmm. With that, can you share with us 
what it is that you do, what it is that the Center for Healing Racial Trauma does, and maybe even speak to um, some of the trauma that I experienced and, and what that's like for Black folks. Yeah. So I think your story is so similar to a lot of people who end up working with me in that you recognize and you have a language for and an awareness of and a critical consciousness around racism and what it means to be a person of color living in the world. But the embodied experience of it can overwhelm us. It can lead to racial trauma. It doesn't matter if you know a lot about it. It doesn't matter if you're really bright. It doesn't matter if you're really wealthy. That somatic experience of the distress that racism causes can get any of us, can affect any of us. And so in 2016, I created the Black Lives Matter Meditation for Healing Racial Trauma. And I created it because I needed it. As another smart Black woman in the world who understood racism, all the layers of it and how it impacts us, but that was the time when Philando Castile was murdered in his car with his girlfriend and her daughter watching. And my body felt overwhelmed. I felt viscerally overwhelmed and disheartened and heartbroken by that. And because I had trained as a licensed psychologist and knew how to use mind-body interventions for psychological well-being, and I thought, why not use this for the effect of racism? So I created that meditation because I needed it. And then, you know, as you're also a creator, when you send something out into the world that you create, it feels incredibly vulnerable. And so I sent it out to some psychology colleagues and said, you know, if this will be helpful to you and your clients during this time, feel free to use it as freely available. Well, that was in 2016. And then in 2017, I had a lot of really good feedback, really heartwarming feedback from BIPOC people like, look. I didn't know I was going to be crying in my office, but I needed that. (laughs) I needed to hear these affirmations. Mm -hmm. I needed to be with my body for a minute and not dissociate. And so Huffington Post picked it up in 2017 and did a feature story on it. And so then, of course, it was shared very widely. Thousands of people had a chance to listen to it and let me know that there was a more pervasive need for this type of work. So I kept that in my mind. And then in 2019, last year, actually, this month last year, I opened the Center for Healing Racial Trauma. And I had been trying to determine when I was going to open it and how I was going to do it because we were still working on renovating the building that we bought. My husband was like, you know what, just do telepsych. Like you have training, just do that approach. And then as the renovations are complete, you can open up the space. So I opened it up in September 2019 and, you know, got a few clients and things were taking a nice pace. And then, of course, around March, when we were entering the era of this global COVID COVID pandemic, there was also an accompanying highly publicized racist violence that led to what the APA calls a double pandemic. And so more and more people started reaching out for services. And then more and more companies and organizations started reaching out. So we have two arms. We do prevention and we do intervention. And prevention is what I do with predominantly white organizations, because if they're not going to get on board with 
undoing their racism and their racial socialization, then the intervention work is just going to keep coming up against a racist wall. So we do consulting, training, workshops with organizations like that, mental health professionals, businesses, you name it, to help them cultivate an anti-racist culture and anti-racist mindsets in the work they do. But the heart of it is the intervention work, which is working with people like you, working with people who are activists, working with people who are students, scholars, all of that, people of color who are ready to therapeutically contend with the impact racism has had on them. And so we see clients individually, I think probably within the next month, we'll be opening up group sessions and we're in the state of Kentucky. So that's where the therapeutic work takes place, but the prevention work takes place globally because we have that option. So that's, that's the story of how we met and that's where we were when you and I met for the first time. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And, and I don't, it's interesting because I'd never thought about needing therapy specifically for racial trauma. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it just so happened that the moment, the day that I had an incident that was so, it was terrifying and I wasn't able to just locate wh- why am I reacting this way? Of course, being, you know, sitting in a murder trial by itself is traumatic. Yes. Um, but then on top of it, the racialized part of it. Mm-hmm. And of course, the right thing happened in that Amber Geiger was convicted of murder. She was found guilty. Um, that doesn't bring Bo back. Mm-hmm. However, we did see what we needed to see as far as um, the justice stepping in and doing what it could do. Yeah. So can, we, can you speak a little bit more to what are some of the natural um, well, I don't know if I would say natural, but what, what are some, can you explain a little bit more about what black folks probably likely are feeling and experiencing during this time when there is this onslaught of not only, um, anti-black violence and terror and killings, um, but how accessible it is for us to see on recording and on videos. Can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah. So racial trauma is like a pathway. It starts with race-based stress reactions, which most people get. Those are the immediate, unintentional, unconscious reactions you get when you're exposed to a racist stimulus or a racist stressor. And that can be a systemic racist stress or a personally mediated one, even sometimes internalized pieces. So these videos, these audios, this social media sharing of all of these instances of racism are racist stressors. And most of us appraise them as stressful. And then our bodies and our emotions and our thoughts start reacting. So in our research, we talk about that as a vicarious racial stimulus or racist stimulus. It's not even have to happen to you. It can be happening to someone that looks like you and you still get a sense for it. And there are three levels of that reaction. So you have somatic reactions. You might find your self having a harder time breathing, your hands might be shaking, your body might be shaking, you might start crying. You might feel like tension in your stomach. A lot of people carry that in their shoulders, in their neck, their jawline. Like you feel yourself getting tight, shaky, and physically unsettled. That's a somatic reaction. For our research, we call that letting out. When you have a racist reaction that you don't hold in, but you let out, your body lets it out whether or not you want it to. 
Um, and then there's another level where it's an emotional reaction. And we call this sitting with because for most Black people, you're socialized to not express affect because it could be dangerous. But for some people, you feel and are able to identify anger and rage or sadness or heartbreak, any spectrum of emotions, sometimes even numbness and apathy when it's just worn you out. So that's another typical reaction. And then additionally, we have the what we call a rising above reaction, but it's a cognitive reaction. It's a series of thought patterns where you start to explain it away so that you don't have to confront the physical and emotional sadness or consequences of that might justify even, depending on how you were raised, why something racist happened in the way it happened. Um, but you also might, if you're really a little bit further along in your critical consciousness, you might start to intellectualize it. So you know it's wrong, but you're dismantling every level of that racist experience and argument. So it's, it, it's one that you might see a person using if someone says something microaggressive and then they give them a litany of like reasons why that's untrue and facts and stats, like that's a rising above reaction. For many people, the rising above is because you've been socialized not to have access to feelings and sensations anymore. And so it's the only way you can grapple with what's happening when you're experiencing a racist encounter. For some of us, though, it's because we don't want to feel anymore. We're tired of feeling. And we feel like to broker our other privileges, maybe our linguistic privilege or intellectual privilege or even financial privilege, educational privilege can do enough for that moment to where you don't feel brought low by the racist encounter. Can you tell me what you would suggest and recommend for Black folks today, in particular, those living in the U.S.? Um, How can we protect ourselves? How can we heal ourselves? What are some, some tips and maybe strategies that you can recommend for us to care for ourselves, especially at this time? Yeah. I want to name that I don't believe that safety and protection are real things. And mm. I know that's unfortunate, but I have to be in that aware. Could you re- could you repeat that for me? I don't believe safety and protection are real things. Okay. And I know that is an, an unfortunate way to frame it, but I think to put the real reality of that out there helps us divorce from respectability politics. Because a lot of people believe that if I just speak in a certain way, or if I dress in a certain way, or if I act in a certain way, my behavior can dictate whether or not I am at risk of violence. And you don't have any control over how people respond to you. Mm -hmm. And so just knowing that we don't have control over other people's like violence and response and reaction to their own racism is liberating. That means that it gives you room to do the things that are healing and facilitate your wellness, like just be. Figure out who you are divested from all of these things that whiteness says you should be. That, yes. is, that is the therapy. That is the free 99 version of it. Figuring out who you want to be, how you want to show up in the world, and recognizing that there isn't any safety provided by assimilating and adopting. Now there's proximity to resources. So I don't want to deny that. If you assimilate, you can gain proximity to certain resources, but is it worth it? Because does 
the resource facilitate your wellness or does it just allow you to move up in a hierarchy that shouldn't exist? What do you call that? What you just described, I understand to be internalized racism and, Mm -hmm. and, and unpacking our own internalized oppression and white supremacy. Is, is that a a term that you would also subscribe to or, or how could you speak to that a little bit more? Absolutely. I think there's, there's the internalized racism component of it, but I understand it and I can empathize with it as born out of survival, what you think you have to do to survive. So I never, for, for anyone along the spectrum of internalized racism, I never say it in judgment or like you're a terrible black person because you have internalized racism or because you endorse certain respectability politics. I get why. I understand why and how many generations of socialization you're contending with when you make those choices. But it is, at the end of the day, an endorsement of this is what I have to do. And so I'm going to do it. And also I'm going to teach other people to do it because I think it will help them live, or I think it will help them get the resources that we want or that we should have already had access to anyway. So it creates this pathway through scarcity to abundance that shouldn't exist. It should just be that we're living abundantly, that we recognize that sharing is a part of interdependence. And so operating just in interdependence, operating in a sense of abundance, operating in courage, where you choose resistance, you recognize what things you're willing to risk and what fears come up for you. Righteous, understandable fears, given the violence of racism. But then you understand and set for yourself, this is what I'm willing to go forward with. So this is how I'm willing to push against that. All of those are really wellness facilitating ways of being. And then at the core of it, you got to take care of your body and your mind too. The therapy is essential because you're talking about decades for most of us of unpacking living in or swimming in the water of racism. And the physical activity is essential. This is one I'm grappling with for myself now and reclaiming. So I do a lot of uh, meditation work, but that's still mind body, but more mind. Like I'm sitting, I'm breathing, I'm doing my breath work. Now I need physical activity. And so I'm just taking all of the excuses off the table for myself and like, I need to walk, I need to move, I need to dance, I need to get some physical activity because otherwise I can't do this sustainably. And so that's a part of our wellness as Black people. We deserve that. Mm -hmm. We do deserve that. And it's so important. I'm really glad that you, you gave that some language as far as understanding that our bodies need to move through have this to. trauma. Yes. Have to, have to. And I, I think especially, um, we don't always make that connection. I think we, we, we separate mm-hmm. um, that I need to get well mentally and, and, and rest mentally, but we don't understand how connected. It's not different. The, the mind-body connection isn't different. So I love your um, approach the, the spiritual and the mental emotional approach, as well as the, the embodied and the physical. Mm-hmm. For someone who is beginning to identify in themselves, for um, someone living in a Black body, beginning to identify the ways that we are contributing to our own harm in the ways that we are assimilating or in the ways that we have been socialized and we're starting to understand that that internalized racism is playing out in harmful ways in our life. For that 
black person that is starting to come into that awareness, what would you recommend they begin to do to address? Start start with compassion, self-compassion. Because otherwise you're going to function out of guilt and shame for how many years you spent buying into that and what happened as a consequence of your buy-in. Start with compassion that you were socialized like everyone else was socialized. And when you're young, you don't challenge your socialization, especially if you were raised in Black families. There's a lot of stuff we just are taught that we cannot challenge. And so you buy in wholesale. And once you start to realize what you bought into and what harm it has caused, you know, make amends, be accountable, but don't be blameful and shameful. That's not going to serve you. All it's going to do is paralyze you. So start there with self-compassion and self-forgiveness for as long as you need. Some of us need a few years of that where daily you're meditating on self-compassion. Every time a thought comes up and you're with self-compassion before you start extending it to other people, because if you don't have it for yourself, it's going to be falsified going to other people. I know that. Um, And once you move to a place where you have compassion, where you realize you will continue to likely engage in some internalized racism throughout your life, just because even if you're trying to deprogram from it, you can't get outside of it in the United States in particular. Maybe there are other places in the world where you can. So once you get to that self-compassion, be willing to have people who you are accountable to and accountable with. It's like, well, if I say something like that, or if I endorse something like that, would you check me, hold me, call me in, like name that for me? Be in a relationship or in solidarity with people who are doing that journey, because it's really hard to do by yourself. Um, And then affirm all of the beautiful, brilliant, creative, wonderful things about your Blackness regularly. Especially since any media you consume is going to do not do that justice. So the affirmation piece is so central. And, and when you and I worked together, um, because at the end of June, I um, did a week-long intensive therapy, mm-hmm. um, 20 hours of therapy with you and, and a team of therapists that work with you. And that's something that that was a theme throughout that week was affirmations. And I have to say, Candace, that affirmations and the ancestors are saving my life mm-hmm. um, every day. Yeah. Um, so uh, I, I really appreciate that you spoke to that. Um, and I kind of want to go into a little bit of um, just the fact that what you do, a part of what your work is, is of course, addressing the racialized trauma, but that's not all of what you do. So can you speak a little bit more to, um, what, what else, um, is a part of your, your practice and and your your therapy that you provide? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So my two things are sex and racism. I talk about the things that people have the hardest time talking about. I don't know if that's what you were getting at, but those are the two things I love to discuss and research and study. And so understanding sexual pleasure and sexual identity development and sexual self-awareness is a major part of the work I do. And in a lot of ways, they're tied together. Like they flow into each other more often than people might imagine. Um, But those 
those inform my research. I'm at the University of Kentucky on uh, faculty here in the counseling psychology program. And that's a lot of what we study, Black sexuality in particular, and what pleasure means to us. So those are some of the additional pieces. Which is such a beautiful thing and, and served me so incredibly well, because of course, um, you know, working with you and with the other team of therapists, we covered a variety mm. of different areas. Um, it, it just, I, I felt like I had a personal team of, of uh, it was like my, it was like having a dream team that everybody was <laughs> just focused on helping me go through um, a lot of the grief that I needed to move through. This was also the time that I had gone on sabbatical mm. because I had reached uh, a point personally and um, I, I was just going through a lot of things in my personal life. In addition to um, George Floyd had just been killed. Yes. So, so much had come up in a very short amount of time. And so coming to that week of therapy and working with each of you, and we didn't just talk about racialized trauma that I was experiencing. We also went into sexuality and spirituality. We mm -hmm. talked about, we, you, we did a lot of inner child work. Yeah. We did grief ceremonies. Mm -hmm. oh, um, we, we did play yeah. I, and bringing play into my life. And so, you know, allowing me to connect back to what I enjoyed as a little girl, I used to enjoy singing and dancing. And that's been something that I've gotten away mm -hmm. from as I've become a, a grown up. Right. Right. <laughs> so all the things that saved us that kept us when we were kids just reclaiming that reclaiming joy as resistance yes um and we you spent a, we spent a lot of time talking about compassion so you even mm -hmm. mentioned that like and and realizing that um compassion is not always something i will say this and i don't know how if you agree black women in particular because we are such caregivers and we have been conditioned and programmed and, and what, what is natural comes natural to us is to caretake the feelings of others and everyone around us, making sure everybody else has what they need. Mm -hmm. And often our needs come next, last, if they even get addressed at all. Right. So even you helping me to identify that, name that, and, and shift to, because my concern when I came to you is I feel like I am not able to have compassion for my adult children, mm -hmm. right? And you helped me just turn that around and say, well, once you're able to have compassion for yourself, you'll be able to, you'll be able to have that compassion and extend it yeah. to others. <sighs> I just got to take a breath because that, yeah. that, it's that still real, it is still so real. Um, I want to go back to what you said in the beginning about how your work has two parts, the, in, the prevention and the intervention. And I didn't even know about the prevention part. So mm -hmm. my first question is, can white folks experience racial trauma? No, it's preventing them from causing racial trauma. <laughs> and some people would disagree. That's their theoretical choice to do so. But no, they cannot experience it, but they can impose it. And so they perpetuate it. They, they cause it. Right, mm -hmm. right. And so, so the prevention is helping them get their minds right. And, it, and a lot of the work has similar underpinnings where I, white people who are uh, striving to be accomplices have to unpack all their guilt and shame too. But it's not because they're experiencing racial trauma. It's because they 
have been privy to the ways harm has been done and said nothing or have committed or perpetrated harm themselves. And now they're ready to shift out of that. And it takes so much time and effort and energy. And so I do it organizationally. I do not do it one-on-one. Like I don't, I don't offer therapy to white people who want to unpack their history of racism and their experience of being entitled to white privileges. So that's, but I think there are some people out there who do stuff like that. So you um, recently posted 10 slides (laughs) um, about how you are not going to discontinue (laughs) anti-racism trading. So uh, I cannot wait for you to share all of that and say as much as you would like. Um, And if you would start with what the current occupant of the Oval Office mm-hmm. is doing that prompted that, uh, okay. that, that reaction from you. So can you take us through that? Right. So there are memos going to government agencies about um, stopping the use of trainings that use critical race theory, that use the terms white privilege, that give an accurate representation of the history of the United States. And the way it's being described is that it's un-American or it's unpatriotic. And so then conflating dishonesty with American and conflating racism with American is inadvertently what's happening when, when he uses language like that or when the administration uses language like that. But they don't care. So it's not, it's not like they're concerned about how they're perceived. I think it's very intentional and by design. We're in an election year, so we'll see how it turns out. But yes, we my response to that was, I'm not about to be wasting energy getting mad at something I'm not about to do anyway. I'm going to keep <laughs> doing, <laughs> doing the work that I do. People can make their choice about whether they keep hiring me to do it and hiring my team to do it, but it will be available. The Center for Healing Racial Trauma isn't going to adapt to weak egos and and terrible leadership just because there are memos out there. And the memos, is that something that um, institutions, universities are taking seriously? Like the University of Kentucky, I mean, has it even come to you that we, we have to just, you know, shift our, our, our Not work? yet. Not okay. yet, but I wouldn't put it past the Commonwealth or, you know, the people mm-hmm. who lead in this state or other states. Um, because universities like University of Tennessee have had whole offices of institutional diversity disbanded in past years and things like this. Like this happens at universities. But what I have seen is that a few people posted, you know, I work at the VA and we've received these memos. Well, I provide training to VAs sometimes. And so, you know, I have to check in with them. Like, are y'all still interested or no? Based on the memos that are coming out. And most people are like, yes, yes, we are still interested, please. So I think right now it's serving as a policy, a policy gateway. It's not a a memo is not policy, but it's serving as a policy gateway so that people can feel emboldened to create policy around that, which will happen in the next year, depending on how this election goes. And then we'll see the fallout of that. We will see the fallout of that. Yeah. But we also like, we'll see how the the election goes. So Mm -hmm. um, we'll, we'll know more and, and let's just even bring that truth in. Yeah. How can all of us 
especially Black folks, take care of ourselves during this time where we are coming up to this election and and also we are in in still in a global pandemic and those numbers are are not dropping necessarily as like we need them to like we want them to in the US right. and on top of just the regular ongoing systemic racism that we are, are that we live with every day what would you recommend for all of us to stay mentally well and take care of ourselves moving into develop a, a robust care praxis. So I always say there are four levels of care. You have numbing, you have self-care, you have collective care, you have soul care. And I think most people right now are in a place of numbing where they're binge eating, binge drinking, binge Netflixing, binge shopping, like trying not to feel anything because this can be really painful and overwhelming. Um, And so I don't want to minimize the value of some numbing sometime, because if you're extracting something really painful, like a tooth, you need to be numb during that process. So numbing is a part of care practice. It just can't be the overwhelming thing you go to. Self-care is what you do for and with yourself. And many people think that this is pampering yourself and basic hygiene. It can include that, but comfort isn't wellness. So that goes back to the exercise piece we were talking about, eating well pieces that we were talking about, doing therapy, getting get receiving therapy, um, moving your mind, body, and working through your wellness that way. That's self-care. Now, of course, a nice hot bath and uh, uh, some tea and things like that, they can also be self-care, but don't let those things like I got my nails done each week be the only thing that you consider when you think about self-care. Collective care is what you do with and for others. And so that could be snuggling with someone that you like to cuddle with. It could be going to resistance or going to marches or protests together, being in a community of people who are resisting. It could just be having a family resumion and being all on social distance, like family time and laughing with each other, having game nights playing, but doing things in community or in relationship with other people, especially for Black people. We value being with others, but not always having to take care of others, just being with others. And then lastly is soul care. And this is what you do for your spiritual or soulful edification. It transcends the mind and the body. It is the whole of you. So for me, it could be meditation or prayer. It could be yoga, but it could be hiking. And just being with nature, like it depends on what your spiritual and soul self feel will enhance it or, or help it. So you need something in each of those categories. You can't just have one and most of us over rely on one, maybe two. So you have to have something in each of those categories in a time like this. That's a beautiful um, explanation. I I wasn't aware of those four, that four, uh, the breakdown of those four. So thank you for that. No problem. Um, I would like to ask a personal question and we can, it's up to you how we want to view it, but it's not that personal. (laughs) Can you share with us um, what brings you joy right now during this heavy time? Mm -hmm. Patty and Gladys brought me joy. Amen. Hallelujah. That really just lifted me up. I didn't even realize how much it would lift me. It was 
such a uh, seeing black elders dance and love on each other and laugh together and share their gifts and music has always done it for me so all of those mm-hmm, pieces mm-hmm. together like I love I've loved most of the verses battles at this point that has been the thing that has been a beacon of joy for me throughout this um and then seeing my son every morning when I go mm-hmm. in his room and I knock on his little door and he'll say, who is it? Because he's still, he's 19 <laughs> months. <laughs> and I'll say, it's mommy. And there's waking, waking him up and saying, hey. And to see him, his bright eyes and smile because his joy is unmitigated. I mean, he is in bliss at this stage in his life. And to see that that is possible and it still exists, his sense of wonder about the world. He feels afraid of nothing to my chagrin sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> right. Like that that brings me joy. You know, having having date nights with my husband and just chopping it up and laughing and envisioning the future we want and being grateful for the present we have, talking to my siblings and just being able to spend family time seeing my students and my mentees and talking with them and seeing how their lives are going. Those things have brought me joy. And then I bought a a used elliptical machine and put it in my garage so I can, like I said, so I could take away all the excuses for just, I am going to work out. I'm going to wake up, walk downstairs and work out. And that's going to be, and I did it for the, we bought it Wednesday and did it that night for the first time. And I was like, I needed this so much. I needed to move at a fast pace and get some energy out. So I had my songs going and I just did like, 30 minutes, nothing, nothing too major, but I needed that. And it brought me so much joy. My husband peeked in and was like, you're really, you're having a good old time, aren't you? Really in here getting it. I love it. I love that. Dr. Candice, what, what are you currently working on? What are you looking forward to most in your work and at the Center for Healing Racial Trauma? So we have a bunch of contracts for training until the end of November. So Rest of September, October, and November are going to be jam-packed working with media companies and athletics departments and universities and all of that. Love it, but it's overwhelming. So I'm taking all of December off. (laughs) I am looking forward to that, to not answering my email and Mm -hmm. to spending quality time with my family. So my husband runs a food truck and he was like, I'm also taking December off. So we are going to enjoy each other, laugh and play and Mm -hmm. set vision for 2021. So those are the things I'm looking forward to. And we have some research projects coming up that are going to be thinking about black black people who meditate and what that's Mm -hmm. like for us. And we'll be thinking about sexual pleasure for black people and how we understand it. So those are the two things I have going on on the science side. I love all of that. I just, I can't wait. I, I love that you were able just to rattle up all the things that bring you joy. You, I think you, you probably could go on and on, but um, all of those things are beautiful. And I'm excited that you get to take off the month of December. I love that. I had to be so intentional about it because, you know, people will take every ounce of time you give them. They will. They will. They will. Um, where can people find you and follow you and keep up with you? Uh, they can find me on drcandisnicole.com or the Center for Healing Racial Trauma.com. Mostly you can find me on Facebook and Instagram at Dr. Candace Nicole and Center for Healing Racial Trauma as well. I don't have a Twitter. I know people think I should have one, but I'm not. 
I can't do another social media. (laughs) (laughs) Those are the main places. It's a lot. So Mm -hmm. I, yeah, it's a lot. Um, I do want to ask this because I, and we might take this out. Folks are going to be listening to this, you know, all over. However, what I understand is that people can only work with you if they are in the state of Kentucky. Mm-hmm. Is there for individual therapy for individual therapy? So mm-hmm. we'll we'll kind of talk more. Like, is there are there options for groups outside of Kentucky to come together and work? So I do I do the prevention work all over, and mm-hmm. some of it is organizations of people of color who want healing workshops. So those okay. can be all over. Mm-hmm. Okay. I've done. Okay. A few where they were like, like a there was um group some minority gen- genetics professionals and they were like, we want to talk about racial healing and I'm like, all right, bet we're gonna do this, and they're everywhere. So I can do the workshops and trainings, but the therapy piece is just for Kentucky. Although we're working on that for 2021, there will be an expansion where we're bringing on therapists in other states, so that. I needed the time to sit with the idea and really think it through before I just jumped into it, mm-hmm. thinking about how I, who I want to hire and how I want to train them and what states I want to start with. But that's coming in 2021. I can't wait to hear more about that. Is there anything else you want to share or speak on or speak to? No, just happy to see that you're happy and living and enjoying life and just mm-hmm. grateful for this moment that we got to share again. Yeah, thank you for um, this time. I really appreciate it. And I know that our audience does as well. Thank you. And thank you to Grapes for the music. The song is I Don't Know 